This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com masters. Hey entrepreneurs, my name is Felix and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Tyler Hanley from Inkbox.com explained why he relies on video to educate customers on an innovative product. In this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that creates customer avatars for all of his marketing. In this episode, you'll learn what kind of questions you should ask your customers to learn more about your market, how to develop your customer avatar, and how to encourage and reward influencers to drive more sales. Today, I'm joined by Tom Hunt from stitchleggings.com. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-L-E-G-G-I-N-G-S.com. Stitch Leggings enables the male gender to both look great and feel comfortable in leggings and was started in 2012 based out of London, England. Welcome, Tom. Hi, I'm very excited to be talking about leggings and <laughs> Shopify today. Cool. Yeah, yeah, excited to have you on. So um, that's it. I mean, you're selling leggings. So tell us more about your store and uh, the idea behind this product. How did you come up with or how did you and your team come up with this idea to sell leggings to men? Yeah, so what happened with yeah, – I'm not sure if I should really share the story online, but <laughs> we, we used to live next to a really trendy market in London me and my two best friends, and we always used to go to the market, and there's loads of pretty girls walking around. <laughs> and then, yeah. but we'd never, we'd be too scared to talk to them, right? So we thought if we had a market stall on the market, then we'd be able to talk to pretty girls. At the same time, we also saw a guy at a party wearing leggings, looking really cool. So we decided to combine or to tackle this and start up a company selling male leggings with a market stall on this trendy market by a house. We actually ended up purchasing 18 pairs of female leggings from eBay, drawing on our male logo to make them branded male, and then trying to sell them on the market store. Sold none in eight hours of trading, uh, but then still like, had a great time. Still, I don't think we spoke to any girls either, but we had a great time, and we decided to start an e-commerce store uh, to continue the business, even though we didn't sell any, and to actually get real male leggings designed and brought over from Shanghai. Um, and they start selling them online. About three months later, we sold our first pair to, to somebody that we didn't know. And that was an amazing feeling. Um, and then it sort of spiraled from there. Mm, cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a perfectly uh, fine reason to start a business, uh, being motivated by uh, something, maybe even not, not even related to the, the product itself uh, exactly. Uh, so you said that you guys have purchased um, 18 pairs of female leggings to try to sell them in person. So was this something you were doing on the side of a day job for both of you guys, for all of you yeah, guys, so or, or what? All, all three of us were working in the city of London. Um, in either consulting or recruitment jobs. Mm-hmm. So did you, was this something that you're doing on the weekends? Like how did you guys find the time to to try this out? Yeah, we just, it was definitely like a weekend and we were living together. So in the evenings, we managed to get stuff done as well. Okay, cool. And you guys took the approach of uh, selling these in person first. So you guys did not try to start an e-commerce business right off the bat? Correct. And I think why was that? I think we wanted to test the idea as well as we wanted to go on the market store. Um, and then, I mean, we sort of realized that we lost money by going on the market because there were the fixed costs associating with, associated with, with having the market store and also the time we had to invest. And it was, I mean, e-commerce was still big back then, but it was a bit less big than it is now. And we were just amazed by the lack of fixed costs that were associated with setting up an, an online store. And we thought that there really is nothing to lose if you're just paying £20 a month. For It wasn't actually Shopify then. It was a company called Moonfruit. We, we've migrated to Shopify since then, obviously. Um, but the, the fit cost was so low, there really was very little risk in starting something up financially. Mm, yeah, definitely. So but one of the, the, the kind of uh, key reasons that you wanted to start selling in person at first was to, to validate to see if there was any actual demand for this kind of product. Uh, but you end up selling nothing. So what, what I guess what kind of kept you guys going? And even though the kind of, you know, quote unquote experiment didn't work out numbers wise, you didn't sell anything. What made you decide, you know, let's keep on pursuing this uh, further? I think it's because we had fun. We really enjoyed the process of trying to sell. 
and like setting everything up. Um, yeah, I think that was it. It's because we enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah, I think um, that that definitely is an experience that a lot of entrepreneurs have, which is that, you know, selling online is, at least if you don't have the experience of selling offline first, it's kind of uh, impersonal, right? You don't get to see the customer face-to-face. You don't actually go through the the sale, the selling process. You know, you put up ads and you drive to the landing page and the product description, does some of the selling and everything, but there's no kind of all at once, let's try to sell this thing. So what was your experience like? Did you guys have ex- any experience in sales at all? prior to uh setting up this uh the store this uh, i guess this table in, in the market <laughs> no zero one so one of my friends was a recruiter they obviously have to sell roles to mm-hmm. candidates but apart from that no no one had any sales experience which is probably why we didn't sell anything i guess <laughs> does, was you, does this make you guys nervous then like you know opening up a store never had any sales experience one guy kind of had sales experience but not selling in this industry of course uh were, were you guys nervous about how do we even approach somebody how do we even pitch our product uh no i think no we were, i really wasn't I, i'm not sure why i think it was because it was for us, it was it was a massive joke. Mm. I, it was it was like yes, we're trying to start a business, but it was also fun as well. So there's no pressure, like no pressure. Yeah, that makes sense. I think when you when you take that approach, like you're saying, no, just trying to have fun and not have these super high goals, especially at first, it it really helps you, you know, not avoid, not run into a situation where you're demotivated because you're not hitting all of these, you know, crazy goals that you set for yourself. Um, but so, any any tips though for someone that never has sold before a similar situation that you guys were in at first? And they want to maybe start selling in person. Like, what are some uh, maybe uh, tips that you can offer to make that first experience uh, a little bit more manageable or a little more successful? Yeah, I think what I've learned about uh, in-person selling um, since that time is to before you try and sell anything, understand the problem that the person is trying to solve, and then if your product does solve that problem, that's awesome. You're much more likely to make a sale after you've made that understanding and they know you understand. But if your product doesn't provide the solution, then also you should recommend someone or some other product, even if it's not yours, that does. Mm. And then obviously you build the trust in that person and they may come back. I, I like that. I think starting with the problem makes sense. I, there's this uh, kind of predicament that some that some uh, businesses run into where they will uh, create a solution or create a product and then go hunt for a problem. Uh, you're saying go the other way first. Understand what is the problem that people already have, and then hopefully you have a fit for it. If not, then uh, you might have to reevaluate the product, or you know, uh, definitely uh, offer something of value back to the customer or potential customer by referring them somewhere else. But um, you know, always keep in mind what is the problem that the customer has. So knowing that, how did you guys understand the problem that the person, the potential customer has? Like, what approaches have you taken to understand? The, the the market or the customer's problems yeah so we've over the four years or so we've been running the store we've obviously been exposed to our customers and we have this avatar this customer avatar that we focus everything around um to, the first thing i'll say is that yeah to understand this problem is very important to meet your customers face to face and so we actually hosted a in-person sort of live night for stitch leggings where anybody who came wearing their leggings would get, get them for free. We had DJs playing and we had a number of our customers turn up, right? So yes, we made a bit of money from that night and we had fun, but it also enabled us to get in front of the customers and actually understand what they were like, what their greatest fears and desires are. So but my first tip is to try and, if you can't get them on Skype, like meet them in person so you can actually really experience these people. Um, and then once you have... Once you do get in front of them, the it's really, really important to not ask closed questions and just have a very open conversation. And you should find that these little gems or these little things that you can tie into your marketing will just pop up. Um, I'll give a real example from the leggings company. We realized that the people we are selling to, they were they had a certain mindset that is always, I guess, against convention. And they were always trying to sort of stand out and be individual and sort of hated the high street. So if you go to our, or once we learned this, almost every marketing message we now send out in emails, in tweets, or on our site, it sort of ties into this, uh, liberate the man from 
modern conventional fashion. So if you go to our homepage, ditchflagons.com, you'll see that all of the content on there is tailored towards this inner sort of desire that our perfect avatar has. And, and we hope, well, we actually know that when that type of person lands on our site, it converts. So that's what I'd say is like get face to face with a person and then ask open questions so you can uncover these deep sort of fears or desires. Mm. So uh, this this is interesting because I feel like um, male leggings was never a, not necessarily a problem, but it was never something that people actively talked about wanting. So did you find that people wanted leggings, or I guess they're called meggings, uh, or did you just find that people wanted to wear things that went against the, the male fashion conventions? Yeah, I, I think it's a bit of both. Um, we We actually started out trying to sort of redefine male fashion. Um, then we kind of realized that more of our customers are actually wearing them for practical reasons like cycling or yoga. So I think it's a mix. I think people will get referred to the site and then this will that mission will sort of really resonate with their personality and then they would buy or they just like wearing leggings for yoga or cycling and then they'll come and buy. Mm. Um, so it's a bit of both. So yeah, I want to go back to uh, your your kind of uh, questioning uh, technique. You said don't ask closed questions, uh, ask open questions. Can you can you describe the, maybe the difference between a closed question and an open question, or maybe do you have an example of one or the other? Yeah, sure. So a closed question would sort of uh, it, it would give like a binary answer, like yes or no. So mm-hmm. you'd say, do you like leggings? Do you want to wear leggings, or do you want to wear male leggings? And someone would say yes or no. Instead, you would ask. Uh, what do you like to wear when you're at home on a Friday evening? And, th- and then you would keep going. Also, that would be like one line of questioning where you're trying to understand sort of what garments they like to wear. But then I, I would actually start out even broader than that and f- start talking about sort of w- why you behave like you do. So I- I- if I was face-to-face with one of our customers that came to that night, I, I would start talking about what their goals are, like ha- what they're trying to achieve in life and then try and understand sort of why they're trying to achieve that thing. And then if they mention a specific behavior or a specific goal, I'd try and understand sort of why they think it is that they want to hit that goal. This is actually how we uncovered that desire to not be the same as everybody else um, from one of those conversations. So I think start like really, really broad mm-hmm. and then like what people are trying to do with their lives. And then you can get a bit more sort of niche down on your product area to uncover more information. Mm, so it sounds like the, the the line of questioning goes, uh, starts very broad on trying to understand their lifestyle, like what their their goals in life. And then you try to whittle that down to the point where you find out why, what's preventing them from achieving those goals. What are the problems in their way from achieving those goals? And in your case, you discovered, I guess, multitude of reasons, but one of them was that uh, people wanted to, uh, I guess, essentially break away from some of these male fashion conventions. And, and you, weren't be able, you wouldn't be able to understand that, I feel like, unless you ask, like you're saying, these open-ended questions get people to talk more. I think mm-hmm. one of the, the problems with closed-ended closed questions is that you don't really get people to to they, they they're just focused so much on answering your questions rather than talking about the way that they're feeling, the, way, the things that they're thinking. So I think that's a great point about asking uh, you know open-ended questions rather closed questions. I think one of the other potential uh, traps that you can run into when you're doing this kind of surveying, whether it be in person or through some kind of f- online form, is that uh, we tend to kind of lead the customers towards your own solution, right? You're almost kind of mm-hmm. I have this automatic bias, which is sometimes really hard to break, where you want them to not not maybe not consciously, but because your your product is your baby and your product is so important to you, you start to ask questions that validate or confirm your 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 own yeah. hypothesis. Do you do anything to to I guess avoid this, or how do you like make sure you're not you're trying to get as much of an unbiased uh, I guess environment as possible when asking these questions? I, I think there's two things I would do. The first is read the book called The Mum Test, which is like a classic book in the startup world, where basically say that if you ask your mum if she wants an iPad app, she'll just say yes because you're asking her. So that's the first thing I would do. Second thing is really just you just get better, you just get more skilled with it over time. So the more conversations you have, the the, the more likely you are to spot yourself giving information away. Oh, actually, the third thing I'll say also is just basically if the person does not know what you sell, make sure you do not mention what you sell mm-hmm. until right at the end of the conversation. 
Because you think that that would influence you or influence them? I believe it would influence them. Because as soon as someone hears what you're doing, (laughs) then they immediately would tailor their opinions to you because you're right there face to face. It's like human nature to make people warmer and like you more. Mm. In, in, in my theory, anyway, I agree with that. I think uh, people will just want to be polite, right? In general, and if you they know you're that you're working on a particular product, then they're going to try to be supportive. That's like ninety nine percent of the time they're going to be try they're going to try to be supportive by giving you answers that, like you're saying, make you happy, right? They give you answers that you that they think you want to hear rather than what they truly believe themselves. So I think that's a great point that you want to try to stay anonymous as possible about your intent and about your product when you're when you're polling and talking to people. Uh, so you you mentioned earlier uh, about customer avatar. So can you tell us a little bit more about like what what for maybe the audience that doesn't doesn't know what this is? What, what is a customer avatar? So a customer avatar is a a person that does not exist that encompasses all of the specific qualities that you are going to market to. So it it is. A, just a profile of or a very, very specific profile of the person that would buy from you. And the, the reason why it's very, very specific and does not really exist is because if you can concentrate your marketing efforts on this very specific person, then anybody with a fraction of those characteristics would potentially buy. Mm. Um, and the, the reason I would and any sort of online marketing professional would urge you to make it as specific as possible is because of the the nature of the internet these days with people getting bombarded with I don't know how many thousands of marketing messages per day. As soon as they see one that really calls out their deepest fears or desires, as soon as they see the ad or that tweet that really calls out their deepest fears or desires, then it sort of hooks people in. Um, and that is only that only occurs due to the specificity of your messaging and thus your avatar. I like that you mentioned that you want to be as specific as possible because I think an immediate reaction is that, oh, I want to be a generalist and I want to be a, I want to apply to as many people as possible because I want to, as large of a market as possible. But you're saying get very, very specific about this person, even if they themselves don't exist. Uh, they don't have, they don't hit all of these particular factors because I think what you're getting at is that a lot of people, even they find a, a portion of themselves uh, re- uh, that is like this avatar, they're going to aspire or relate to the rest of it, even if they're not exactly that, that, that avatar. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's very important that you don't want to be make it as generous as possible. You don't want to be a product for everybody. You want to try to be as specific to one one type of person that has a specific type of problem as much as possible. So you you mentioned that uh, to to build this, you know, you talk to people in person through that through the, that event and probably subsequent events uh, since then in person or you know on Skype. Are there any other ways that you found uh, that has been helpful for you guys to help to to, to develop a, a customer avatar? So uh, the key really is to interact as much as possible. So if you're just setting up a store. You send the support email to yourself, not your virtual assistant to start with. You try and get your first customers on Skype. You set up your in-person event. That's really the key is having as many conversations as possible with those open questions. Now, obviously, when you don't have any customers, it's hard to do this. And if you do have, that's when you really have to take a stab in the dark and you have to from your previous knowledge of this type of person, try and build this avatar, um, obviously with the product that you have to sell it in mind, right? So, I mean, sometimes you can take the avatar first and say, this is the type of person I'm going to have, and therefore I need to make this product. Or if you have a specific product that you want to sell, then you have this specific product, and then you work the other way and decide, okay, this is the person who I think would want this product. So first you have to take a stab in the dark, and then that that image of the person is converging upon the ultimate perfect avatar with every conversation that you have. So it's an educated guess, and then it's multiple conversations to perfect 
and because it's a is an evolving um i guess uh description of a customer and it's something that that uh you you, you like you're saying you put as a hypothesis as as efforts and then based on conversation it, it morphs and molds based on these uh these interactions with customers do you how do you or or do you document this this information about your customer of the customer avatar so we just have one Google document that we've had really for the past few years that contains all of the information about this person and is continually updated uh, whenever we sort of want to tweak or edit who this person is. Um, we try to record all specific email chains or Skype conversations or text message conversations with the avatar. We try and keep that all in a folder on Google Drive as well. But there's this one specific document that has the the Bible. Mm, cool. And do you do you ever see a, um, a a potential split? Like, let's say over time you start seeing trends in two different directions. Like, it's, it it sounds like there might have been a split where uh, there were some customers that just wanted to defy the male fashion conventions, and there's the other split where it's more of a functional not split, but another type of customer that's buying for functional reasons for yoga or cycling. Do you see this, these kind of things happen? And what do you do when you start seeing a trend of potentially maybe more than one avatar? Yeah, so then what What we we haven't actually done this yet. Well, we kind of have merged them all into one avatar. So this person who attempts to defy convention also does yoga. Um, we're actually bringing out some cycling leggings next week. And therefore, I think you're actually going to split out the avatars. So we're going to have three. We're going to have the the person who is not into sport, doesn't wear leggings for sport, wears leggings for fashion is one. And then we're going to have a yoga and a cycling avatar as well. Um, so when you, I mean, there really is no limit to how many avatars you can have. But if you want to, each avatar would have separate marketing campaigns, right? So it depends how many how, how you want to dilute your marketing efforts right so i i wouldn't say unless you're a massive massive company selling thousands of units a day you wouldn't need more than three to five avatars like we are going to have three and therefore every marketing campaign we do will probably be targeted at those three different people yeah, that, that makes sense. And and um, when you do have, like you're saying, one of the, uh, I guess, ways that you use this customer avatar is to affect and to build specific marketing angles, marketing campaigns, because each avatar uh, needs to be marketed towards uh, differently. Uh, how do you manage all this? Is there technology that you use or apps that you use to make sure that uh, you are able to track, you know, specific uh, potential customers or actual customers based on which kind of avatar they they uh I guess fall into? Yeah, sure. So we just use the very basic um, Google Analytics or Google UTM tracking links. So every sort of tweet or every Facebook ad will have a tracking link made with the, we can link to the Google Chrome tracking link creator, link generator below this episode, I'm sure. Um, So we add the avatar name and the source of the traffic uh, in that link. Then we're tracking just the basic e-commerce conversions in Google Analytics so we can see for every conversion in the site uh, which link and therefore which avatar, which channel, which traffic source it came from. Uh, So nothing too high-tech like those Google Analytics links are so easy to create and then setting up e-commerce tracking in GA is really not hard either. So that's everything we're currently doing. Mm, okay, makes sense. Yeah, definitely uh, makes it much more scalable than just trying to keep track of it manually. Um, so the one one last question about this avatar thing is uh, you built your avatar. Let's say you, you had an hypothesis for one. You've spoken to you know 50 customers and has evolved over time and you kind of now feel comfortable that you have an avatar that you can kind of go to market with. How do you guys use your avatar on a daily basis? Like how often are you looking, maybe not even daily, but how often are you looking at the avatar and how does it influence uh, the kind of work you guys do on a day-to-day basis? So I, out of the three of us, I'm the guy responsible for growth. So it's really whenever I am creating anything that would interact with the outside world, I'm, I wouldn't review that Google document, but I would envisage that person in my mind. So whenever I'm writing an email, I always put it, Dear David, David's the name of my avatar. So I always write, Dear David, obviously I take that out when I send the email, but um, I, I always envisage myself talking directly to David, and I think about what David would be doing at that time of day, what what David had for breakfast today, like what David is doing tonight. Um, so, I mean, formally, we would update that document whenever we 
sort of gather more information. But in reality, he is being reviewed whenever I'm creating any marketing materials. And you're speaking, like you're saying, you're speaking to them, to, to David, to your avatar directly. You're not just creating his avatar and then still, you know, when you write the email, you're trying to talk to, you know, 10,000 people or however large your email list is. You're just trying to write an email as personal as, pro- as possible directly at the avatar. Yeah, exactly. I, I think if you don't, you're going to get ignored. Like I get email newsletters all the time um, and I, it feels to me like they have no idea who I am or how they can help me. Mm-hmm. Whereas I hope that when David receives my email, he's like, oh, God, this guy Tom or this company Stitch Leggings really, really uh, um, understand me. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, so, so speaking of one of the, the avatars that you guys created, which was the, the kind of customer that wants to defy these male fashion conventions, did you was this always something that uh, I guess was easy to market towards, or did you have to spend a lot of time educating people when you're you know essentially selling a product that is and uh, I wouldn't say, um, I mean, obviously you have a market for it, but I think at the time, as, at least very early on, it wasn't, you know, a typically, obviously not a predominantly, uh, uh, a product that's not, wasn't predominantly targeted at men. There was predominantly targeted at women. Did you have to overcome any obstacles like marketing obstacles or PR obstacles while selling a product like this? I, I actually think that no obstacles were placed in our way. We were given more boosts like inorganic boost because of the remarkability of, of the product. I'm a big fan of Seth Godin's work where his classic book, Purple Cow, where he, he talks about the more people will remark about your product, the less money you'll have to spend on marketing because people will make remarks upon it, about it mm. in front of other people. So what actually happened when we were, when we started, we managed to gain massive press exposure on some of the biggest news sites in the UK and on the the biggest television channel uh, in the UK purely because of the story we were telling about the product and the remarkability of the product itself. Mm, and, and this uh, this exposure on TV, was this the Dragon's Den appearance that you guys were on? Correct, yeah. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit more. So um, you guys went in, and correct me if any of these stats are wrong, but you went in looking for £20,000 for 20% equity in the company. Didn't I don't think, at least it didn't turn out uh, monetarily successful. You guys weren't able to get a deal, but obviously a ton of exposure through this yeah. channel. Tell us a little more about that experience. Like, How early on in your in the business was this, uh, was this appearance? Yeah, so we went in in the middle of 2014 and the episode posted at the start of 2015. I actually applied at the end of 2013, so a year into the business. And it was a very sort of ad hoc thing. I saw the the advert and I just, try, I just tried to apply. Um, eventually got in. We, we were told that they had no idea how the dragons were going to react. And the, the dragons, I'm sure we can link to the episode below, but they actually thought it was like a big joke. Um, which is fine. Like it was funny, and the episode was funny. Like it got on the TV, of course. Um, meant that we didn't get the investment that we required, but the exposure was pretty good for the brand um, financially. Very cool. Yeah, and for the audience that, that might not know about Dragons Den, it's basically Shark Tank for any in the American audience. Uh, entrepreneurs go on pitching a product of theirs. Uh, so, did you guys, um, you know, maybe this is not exactly relatable for all audience members because they might not be on a show like this, but I think preparing to pitch to investors is always a valuable asset, a valuable skill to have. Uh, how did you guys prepare for that? How did you guys make sure that you had everything in order for, for a pitch like this in front of, you know, very serious investors? To be honest, we, like we were really not that well prepared, which may be the reason we didn't get the money. It might not have been the fact we were wearing male leggings. Um, so, like uh, since since that pitch, I've obviously got a lot better at that. Um, but to be honest, we were not well prepared because I actually think that we wouldn't have really, at that time, known what to do with the money if we did get it. Mm. The reason we we really wanted to go on was because of A, the exposure, and B, because it was fun. Now, I, I, I want to quickly jump back to our avatar again. We seem to be talking about that a lot, but I think it's very important. If you think about three guys running a business, going on and like getting ridiculed on TV, like maybe that's not a good message. Like You wouldn't want to share that content, or you wouldn't even want to do that if you had 
any type of business, right? But if you think about the avatar that we have, someone who does not like convention, seeing their heroes go up against convention effectively, uh, successful business people from the UK uh, who are who are, let's say, mainstream, and then us being martyrs and losing a fight to these people mm. on live TV, for, for me, and I've actually had feedback from my customers, of course, that was very, it was a very powerful thing to do and has given us this amazing piece of content that now, of course, is sitting on our homepage. So when we think about who, we're, who our avatar is and what content would make them uh, have a greater affinity to the brand, maybe it was actually a good idea to go on and get ridiculed um, as opposed to it looking bad for us from a business perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, so so that, that was really the rationale. It wasn't so much to get the investment because uh, I'm not sure we would have known what to do anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that that's um, like you're saying a lot of a lot of it ties back to the avatar because I feel like either result, whether you got the investment or not, you could have marketed or 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 presented the the result of you know your dragon's then appearance differently and it's still been as effective because again it goes back to the avatar goes back to what kind of values that they have if it's been if it's successful you can you know present it as a, a win story in this kind of fight against uh, male fashion yeah. events or you know because you didn't you didn't win you could present like you no know, this is a i guess quote-unquote enemy that you guys are going up against um, as you're trying to defy this uh, this kind of a convention so i think um just knowing the avatar is going to be vital for you because you can essentially take anything that happens, any uh, any story, and put the kind of proper angle and you know I don't want to say spin, but put put the kind of proper flavor on it that will resonate with mm -hmm. uh, with the avatar. Um, so you, you mentioned earlier that you, you out of the the uh, the three co-founders, you're responsible for growth. Uh, was this your your role from the very beginning? No, we. Because no one really had any experience in online business when we started, we were all we were all sort of jumping in and doing whatever. And then, it, it, in the background to the legging story, I've sort of left the corporate world and then learned online marketing and started various other online businesses as well. So, the, le learning online marketing was crucial for all of them. Um, and so, it's actually something that's become somewhat of a passion uh, of mine. So, I've taken on that role. Uh, organically with the leggings company as I've sort of got better at it and started to enjoy it more. Mm. So uh, when you did take on this role early on uh, or, you know, just early on in the business in general, what what, what, what did you guys kind of focus on uh, for, for that very early growth, you know, especially for any listeners out there that are kind of in this phase where they have a product, maybe they're still working on their avatar and they're just trying to get some sales through the door, get, you know, so, uh, kind of get at least some cash flow on a monthly basis through the door. Uh, what did you focus on early on in terms of growing the business? Yeah, so because we had no money, we, I guess the strategy was create content ourselves and then distribute that to where we knew our avatar existed online. Uh, so whether that's just sort of tweeting out and then using specific hashtags or creating Instagram images and then using specific hashtags, that's like the small-scale way. Um, and so that started to bring in the first few sales. And then to, to scale that up still without spending any money is finding the, the people online who have the audience of your avatar, sending them leggings, and then alongside a discount code, and then agreeing with them that they would wear the leggings and, say, put five pictures on Instagram with that specific discount code. So those are the two things. They are the two things that I would urge anyone to do who's just starting up their store, like start doing that right now, and I'd be consistent with it over a number of months and obviously track everything, um, to get those first sales through the door, to get you some revenue that you can then, say, spend on ads or to pay content creators to write stuff for your blog. Um, so that's what I would recommend. 
No, yeah, I like that, that that you're using a free method to kind of kickstart some cash flow so then you can then reinvest that into your business. Um, so to kind of place a label on, on this approach that you've taken, you're doing an influencer marketing. You're trying to find influencers out there that, like you're saying, has an audience that, that matches your avatar. So how do you begin that kind of search process? How do you identify that this particular influencer has the avatar or has an audience that has the that belongs to the avatar that, that you guys have created? Yeah, so uh, I'll focus on Instagram because that's been the most effective channel. Um, it really is just a, a case of spending a lot of time on the application. Um, obviously, your avatars are already formed. You know exactly who they are and what they like. Uh, you then start searching hashtags and you then start sort of going through and finding people with significant audiences that you think your avatar would follow. Um, what's really handy about Instagram actually is when you find someone that's perfect uh, and you follow them, you click follow, it, gives, it immediately gives matches you with three people similar to them that you also could potentially follow. So mm. that's all like once you get one good one or a couple of good ones, like Instagram is already automatically finding you people similar to them. Um, so that's what I really like about Instagram. Uh, but it really is a manual process. Um, once you find them, of course, you need to track them in a spreadsheet, like track number of followers, track, like get all the personal information, not personal information, get all the information, track in a spreadsheet. Um, that's really important. So you can sort of follow your journey with them and make sure that obviously like you're following up with them to make sure they post. Yeah, it's definitely important to track this, especially as you work with more and more influencers. And, you know, speaking of that, is this a, a numbers game where you try to reach as many influencers as possible, especially early on? Or do you do you try to be hyper-targeted in, in your approach? I, I think it depends how much uh, you want to spend. Obviously, like there's the, the cost of the item that you're sending people. Um, for us, it was definitely a numbers game. Like we sent out hundreds of pairs of leggings, like some won't even get to your person. Some people won't post even though you send it to them. But some people will be amazing. Um, and because you're sending them specific discount codes, you, you're only going to lose, say, seven pounds, right? That's approximately the cost of the leggings. Um, and so you can very quickly understand who is a good influencer for you and who isn't based on how many sales you get and say if you get like a 10 to 1 return on that ROI return on that investment then you're just going to send them more you're going to send them more pairs and you're going to give them better discount codes so you can control you can mitigate the risk by only sending one item um, and tracking making sure you're tracking the results for each influencer Mm, okay, so you are uh, taking this kind of shotgun, not shotgun approach necessarily, but you're trying to find every single influencer out there that you think has an audience of your customer avatars. You are reaching out to them, asking them, what are you asking them exactly? You're just saying, well, I want to send you free products, or how do you kind of pitch this? Yeah, it's just a DM on, just a DM on Instagram. Say, like, we're opening up our ambassador program. Uh, would you be interested in contributing? We'd be, sending, we'd be happy to send you one pair uh, if you agree to promote us on your profile with five images uh, with a specific discount code. Um, and, and again, that's a numbers game. Like A number of people won't respond to that. A number of people will. Uh, and it's just a case of collecting their information, like sending them a basic contract to sign. Like, I recommend doing that just to increase the amount of the conversion to sending a pair and people posting. Um, so yeah, again, numbers game, like basic outreach on Instagram DMs and then tracking making sure that the people that have agreed they actually do it Okay, so you you um you know I guess there's two different uh, approaches that that I've seen uh, with influencer marketing. There's the approach where you have an ambassador program, and I'm assuming are they getting compensated uh, through through uh, like a referral bonus or how does that work? Yeah, so now so up until now, no, they haven't because we haven't invested in the affiliate software. However, only recently I learned about a technique to actually track affiliates without for free and so all, all, all you need to do is ensure that the link you give to your influencer is one of those google analytics utm tracking links and you can actually give your influencer read only access to your google analytics account if you wish and then they can actually track all the conversion all the e-commerce conversions with their link and therefore they trust you and they trust the fact that they can actually see all the conversions they make and then you could pay out manually mm. that's a very cheap way to give affiliate commissions without paying for any expensive software. So we're actually going to start doing that soon. Um, but but up until now, it's just, we've just been incentivizing with the product itself. 
Mm, okay, cool. Yeah, I think that, that that's a great way to get started incentivizing with just the product itself. And just by offering that discount code, I think one key thing to keep in mind is that influencers, they they have their audience and they want to make their audience happy, right? There's no influencer out there that hates their audience that doesn't want to make them happy. And by giving them kind of value to give back to their customers, or sorry, to give back to their audience through a discount code, you're giving them a tool to make their audience happy. So it's really, I think, important to keep that in mind too that you're not just coming to them and say, hey, advertise this for me. You're also offering their audience a discount code and by having them use that discount code uh, when they're broadcasting to their audience, they're giving something of value back to their audience. So definitely keep that kind of in mind when you are, you know, pitching uh, an, an, an influencer. Uh, so you, you mentioned that uh, you, when you're tracking this, you are able to identify which influencers are amazing that are driving a lot of conversions for you guys. And what do you, what do you, what do you do when you work with them? Uh, what do you want to work with them more? You're selling them more products and you said that you're giving them a steeper discount code to, to give to their audience. Yeah. So we'll, we'll send them like, like better, like limited edition products and like even we'll double the amount of discount we'll give um, just because we only give 5% discount out for first time influencers and then so like we mitigate our potential losses uh, but, but then we're happy to offer more um, if someone can bring higher volume. And is this something that you, you mentioned right off the bat or do you almost say, hey, surprise, you know, because you've been doing so well, here's uh, some more uh, better deals or do you tell them that upfront that, hey, if you hit this particular threshold, there's a particular goal, this is what's available for you? Yeah, so so we say if, if this goes well, like usually after we've agreed, we say if this goes well, then we'd be more than happy to sort of uh, continue our relationship on more favorable terms. Mm, okay. And you mentioned that, that you have a contract. I'm assuming this part is uh, that you just talked about is included in the contract or at least included in the conversations. Um, I, I haven't heard of anyone that, that's gone to this uh, that has asked an influencer to, to I guess, sign a contract. Um, do you find people get turned off by this when you start talking about the legality, I guess, aspect of it all? Like, if, if not, it really isn't a legal, like a watertight legal contract. It's something that we drew up. Um, and we say that it's not watertight, but we just, just so we can understand each other's uh, commitments in this relationship um, so yeah like we we do get a lower conversion rate but then maybe the people that do not sign the contract are the people that also would potentially not promote the product mm-hmm. so we we kind of see it as a good filter yeah, I think that that's a good point that you are, by adding kind of more hurdles, you are you might decrease your conversion rate, but the ones that do make it through are the ones that are more serious. And sometimes you do want less people to work with, less people to deal with, essentially, yeah. and look for the high-impact uh, influencers anyway. So I think it's a good idea to have these kind of hurdles. Uh, maybe not early on when you can't find anybody to work with you at all. You might want to give a little bit more kind of uh, leeway, but once mm-hmm. you start working at these uh, much bigger numbers of influencers you're reaching out to, it makes sense to at least protect or kind of de-risk your side of things. Um, so what kind of, I guess, um, stipulations or what kind of, I guess, uh, requirements or commitments do you usually ask of an influencer when you do work with them? Yeah, so the standard for us is just five posts featuring the product on Instagram with our, without a link, obviously, um, but with our, well, like without a clickable link. Uh, and the discount code in the description and tagging our brand on Instagram as well. Okay, cool. And what, what happens when you, um, you know, I know you said that the contract is not something airtight and you probably wouldn't pursue it anyway, uh, but no. when you do send out the product, how long do you wait or like how long do you before follow? Because I think that's another maybe potentially awkward situation that a lot of entrepreneurs are put in where they don't have a lot of fun. So they send out these products and then they're just, you know, not getting kind of scanned, but they're just not getting a, as, as much, uh, I guess, a commitment from the other side as they would like. How do you deal with this kind of situation? Yeah, so we we definitely drive for the commitment beforehand, of course, and we get people to agree with the contract. Um, we send out the product. And then we just have a virtual assistant who's charged with following up. Um, but then if we follow up, well, we probably wouldn't follow up more than three times. Like we just sort of admit, admit the loss uh, if someone doesn't reply three times. Um, like because the investment is pretty insignificant in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, so we, like we don't go crazy about it. 
Mm. And just give the audience an idea of, uh, I guess, how long a setting up a program like this takes. Do you remember how long it took you guys from deciding that you were going to be focused on reaching out to influencers to actually maybe getting the first sales from uh, the influencers that you worked with? The first batch we did with about 10 people. Um, it took a few hours on Instagram to find those 10 people. Uh, sent them out the next day, started getting pictures coming through after about 10 days, um, and then started getting, we didn't actually make that many sales from those first 10, because we didn't have like the influencer nailed down, but we definitely had affiliate or influencer sales coming in around two to three weeks after we decided to do the program. So like, I think in terms of like investment, total investment, it's pretty minimal, especially if you're starting up, and in terms of effectiveness, yeah, it's not as fast as putting up Facebook ads, but it can bring sales within two to three weeks. Mm, yeah, definitely. Probably a lot uh, a lot cheaper than, than uh, running Facebook ads or at least better yeah. return on your investment. Uh, so yeah, so influencer marketing sounds like uh, what you guys did early on and it sounds like what's been successful for you guys even today. Can you give us an idea of how successful the business is, you know, based on all of these kind of marketing techniques that you've, uh, you've employed? Yeah, so we haven't, I mean, I'll give you, a volume of leggings sold yearly. So start off, we just sold 150 pairs in the first year. So this is us like investing like two hours a week. We were working full time, so 150. And then 450 in the second year, 850 in the third year. And this year, I think we're, we're going to be selling somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500. Um, so like not a massive business, like we, we rarely take, I think we've only taken money out of the business once or well, the money's been reinvested back in. Um, and we haven't actually, I haven't, I'm yet to nail paid acquisition. Um, so pretty much all of that has been from these organic uh, or like the influencer social media content and SEO marketing. Um, I'm of course experimenting with Facebook uh, on a weekly basis to try and get that positive ROI. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, in terms of marketing ROI, it's been very good, but we are yet to scale. So we have this sort of foundation of sales coming in from SEO content, social, and influencer. But it's really when I nail the positive ROI on paid ads, predominantly through Facebook, that we're going to see some significant growth. Um, but again, it, we're still, none of us are full-time. We still have full-time other projects. Um, probably invest a few hours a week growing this. Um, I think that if I do hit the positive ROI Facebook paid marketing, then we would potentially consider sort of focusing on this full time. But until then, we wouldn't. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, I think I think if scale is the the key to the success. I think uh, paid acquisition is definitely there because once you figure that out and get a positive return, it's just a matter of putting in more money and essentially printing money at the end of the day. Exactly. Uh, once you figure it out, that's the, that's the uh, kind of uh, key uh, the the goal everyone's trying to reach when they're trying to scale their business. Um, so, what what have you I guess learned? What can you you use from your learnings from the the free channels? You know, from influencer marketing from content marketing that that has helped you uh, on this road towards uh, figuring out the paid acquisition piece? I think that it's, we're going back to the avatar again, but having a very specific knowledge of what this person is trying to achieve with their life and then finding out where they exist on the internet then putting content in front of them. Like that's the three steps. It's mm -hmm. like who are you targeting, like where do they live or where do they live on the internet? And then how can you put your content in front of them for as low economic cost to you as possible? And for me, that's using social media manually. You, you're like, first you get it working yourself and then you give it to a VA and then finding influencers manually. First you get it working for yourself and then you give it to a VA. Um, so yeah, that's the three-step process. Once it's working and you're getting the positive ROI, then you hand it over to a virtual assistant. Um, I mean, they, they, that's exactly the same process that we're going to use when we get Facebook advertising working, right? So first, decide exactly who you're targeting, like the same avatars, and then find out where they are. Okay, they're on Facebook. And then, like, put the content in front of them at a low economic cost. It's getting the targeting right, and then monitoring the campaign. So it's, like, exactly the same thing, but instead of paying Facebook to put the content in front of these people, you're, like, giving influencers or you're using uh, you're being sneaky on Twitter or Instagram. Mm, definitely. So uh, now that we're kind of uh, in the holiday shopping season, definitely by the time this episode, episode goes live, we're going to be in it. Any uh, plans or what are you guys I guess, focused on to take advantage of this this uh, season? 
Yeah, so we usually we have specific discount codes that we give strategically uh, through specific influencers and to a specific group of people that come to our site. Um, we usually also like put together, like we package together products. Um, so like the perfect gift for him will be a number of like a specific combination of leggings that would with maybe some special items that we haven't decided upon yet. Um, just like bundle them together in this special package that we can add like an extra little margin on because it's like the special Christmas present. Um, that's really everything that we that we have done in the past and probably will do in the future. Yeah, I think those kind of gift guides are so so vital for, uh, especially if you can make it on other gift guides uh, from other other brands or other uh, mm-hmm. content sites. I think making it on there is basically getting uh, uh, free customers because there a lot of people just don't want to don't have the time or just overwhelmed with shopping. They're just like, just tell me what to buy, and if you can be in front of them when they're in that stage, I think it's a a very cheap way to acquire customers. Uh, so, what what are some uh, future plans for the brand? You know, outside of holiday season maybe over the next year or so what do you what do you want to see the the brand go yeah so as i mentioned we've developed this other avatar and we're bringing like specific cycling male leggings out um so once we have them we have a total of 19 different products um then it's really just ensuring that i invest enough time in paid acquisition because once we have paid positive roi campaigns running for those three different avatars then we're going to be at a scale and then we're going to have massive freedom on what we actually do with the brand going forward. Um, we did actually try to branch out to a different product that did, it wasn't really successful. It was a single handed watch. So our, our, our theory was that the same person who sort of wants to uh, defy male convention would also be interested in a watch that only has a minute hand. Um, we got them developed. They weren't the highest quality of watches to be honest. Um, but then I only sold about five and discontinued the line. So that would need, uh, further product lines would need a lot of thinking and more importantly, a lot of conversations with the customer. We didn't have, I think we only had two conversations with customers about what other products they would like to see uh, from our brand. That was probably the reason why the watch failed. So once you have a, a customer base already that you can easily access, you know, from all the thousands of uh, pairs that you sold, uh, do you do you take the approach differently now, where you, uh, I guess, um, do the surveying, do these questions, asking questions, even before you have a product in mind, or do you still go back to the approach where you come up with the product first and then, uh, not try back into it, but you try to validate your hypothesis about an existing product? Yeah. So what we it's quite interesting when we released the latest few designs, we we had our brainstorming session, drew up sort of images of what they would look like and then sent out a survey to the complete list asking people to vote on the designs and then only produced the top three. So uh, I think that was an extremely powerful campaign actually because when you did come to launch the designs, you, the email you would write would be like, you helped us chose the, these designs. Here's a specific discount code. Thank you very much for helping us develop these designs. Um, we only have 50 of them. Here's a specific discount code. That email converted really, really well. So I am a massive fan of uh, enabling your existing customer base to to feel like they collaborate with you well, and to actually collaborate with your future products because it sort of kind of gives you an excuse to market to them when you launch the product and I think would increase conversion rate because they feel like they're, uh, well, they are involved in the process. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think when they are, like you're saying, involved, they they are much more likely to support the end product if they had an influence in it in, from the beginning. Okay, cool. So thanks so much again, Tom. So stitchleggings.com is the is the website. S T I T C H L E G G I N G S dot com. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? Uh, yeah, so you can just go to the site. Like, I love, I love you to check out our funnel and like our lead magnets. That'd be awesome. Um, if you have any questions about Shopify or how we built the brand um, or PR, actually, we've been very effective with that. You can tweet me at TomHunt.io. Like, I'm more than happy to uh, answer any questions that you may have. Awesome. Thanks again so much for your time, Tom. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.